Adrian Tan, and this is my podcast where I deep dive into matters surrounding HR tech and the future of work. I was a former HR serial entrepreneur and write extensively about the future of work on my blog. You may know me better through the Singapore HR tech market map that I created in 2017. In this podcast, I speak with the people who are enabling the future of work. From mindfulness coach to employee engagement platform, they are all helping companies to better navigate rising work and business demands. I'm hoping that sharing in this podcast will help you better prepare yourself and your business for what the future of work may bring. Hey, Charles. Welcome to the show. Hey, Adrian. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to speak with you today to help us understand more about the things that you're doing in helping global businesses to hire employees anywhere in the world easily. But before that, maybe you could help us to understand a bit about your background. How did you come into this space and what exactly is the problem you're trying to solve? These are all great questions. And at the risk of reciting my CV, I will give you a little bit of background on how I got to, to this point. And then I'll, as you stated, I'll go into a little bit more detail around this pretty significant I would call it an opportunity and how we're basically greasing the skids, if you will, for companies to take advantage of it. My my background is, is quite uh, unique and rather colorful. I've been out in this region, the Asia Pacific region for uh, a little over 35 years and began my kind of uh, career in the technology space, actually, uh, starting off in the uh, early 90s with uh, Intel Corporation. And in Intel, I was in the supercomputer group, which was very heavy, typically focused on academic type computing. And they got into more uh, consumer oriented technologies with servers and, and the advent of the and ultimately gravitated further into tech and went to uh, Microsoft and got into the software side of uh, the business. And then began a journey that took me into various areas and flavors of, of cloud technology. So onto salesforce.com, where I ran uh, a, a business for them in North Asia, lived here in Singapore for you know, 20 years now in China for over a decade, did high school in Indonesia, um, originally from Atlanta, Georgia. And after my stint at Salesforce, I started gravitating more towards enterprise and went into um, SAP again and on the cloud side of the business. And this is where it became an interesting turn towards the human resources side of the world. As I was managing uh, and building teams within these companies that I just mentioned, I started seeing this very specific and very obvious need for expertise to be shared and actually developed around building solid teams. And I left SAP and started uh, an HR consultancy practice with a buddy of mine. And we grew that business to ultimately about 12 people, both here in Singapore and in Hong Kong, and ultimately sold that business. But it, one of my clients in that practice was a company that many of your listeners will have heard of called ADP a payroll at HR outsourcing. And I joined up with them because I was intrigued by their mission and confident that we could do something really unique with this business across APAC and ultimately became the president general manager for that company and ran that business with them for, for several years. And then continued down that path of HR, joining a, a business services outsourcing firm called Tricor with a private equity fund and ultimately left that business and got a call from the founder of this firm, Globalization Partners which is the segue now for me to tell you a little bit about what they do and, and how we're solving for that challenge you called out, which is to you know, be able to hire people anywhere in the world with ease. Nicole Sahin, the founder, and I were speaking about the inherent opportunities, particularly in this region around folks who are looking to hire into remote environments or explore markets and the challenges that they have as they start to get into those markets. 
particularly when it comes to regulation around hiring employees, labor law, and uh, statutory benefits administration and things of this nature. And ultimately, I, I took on a position with the firm. I'm the GM now for Asia Pacific. And this company has been around for uh, just about a decade, specifically born uh, into the, the, the world of remote work to solve for that problem of the challenge that businesses have as they look to enter into a new market initially, the traditional method was to go out and you know plant the flag, establish the legal structure, go through the paid up capital and all the registrations to get the business up and running, and then to go out and leverage that vehicle to employees. And of course, there are always, there are little gotchas in those scenarios that you may or may not be aware of. And you, of course, there's lawyers involved, et cetera. And she thought to herself, there has to be a better way to do this. And so with that as a backdrop, she went around the world essentially. And over the past 10 years, we've established a legal presence in 187 countries around the world, employing thousands of professionals on behalf of the ultimate employers. And what that, what does that mean? That means that we have locally compliant operating businesses in these countries and for our clients, we hire the talent that they bring to us on their behalf. We put them on our local compliant payroll. We administer their benefits, both the statutorily required benefits, but also additional should the employer uh, request or require it. And then see to their day-to-day HR needs if they have challenges or escalations or things of this nature where they're on the ground to help them out. And it's interesting, Adrian, because some companies do this specifically because they want to enter to the market and test it. Some companies actually come to us and say, hey, we're not interested in this market particularly, but we have found talent that is really compelling for us that we want to capture. And we'd like to use your vehicle to acquire and retain on board that talent. And so we're seeing uh, a lot of really interesting use cases evolve, particularly post the pandemic, but we, we can get into that in the course of this conversation. That's really fascinating. I have so many questions I want to ask, but first and <laughs> foremost, perhaps you could help people to understand how, uh, or walk through with us, what is a typical process for people who may not be using your kind of services versus how it might be, I would assume, accelerated if they were to use a company like Globalization Partner. Sure. I can give you a couple of examples. So let's take a particular country and this is not a bias. This is just one that happens to be top of mind for me because I was on a call earlier about it today. So let's look at uh, the People's Republic of China, a very exciting and dynamic market, a ton of chain sweeping across uh, the economy, both domestically there, but also for their outbound foreign direct investments for businesses and for the government, frankly. And so a lot of people you know, for the past 30 years, not to mention the excitement now as we're exiting the main crux of the pandemic, China's a massive market opportunity for a lot of companies. One of the challenges with entering into the Chinese market, and again, caveat emptor, this is not, they don't have a monopoly on complexity. There's a lot of complex and challenging markets out there, but China particularly is fraught with a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of challenge as you go through the machinations of establishing a business. Let me speak to those specifically. You, you land um, in a particular part of China and you need to reach out to the local government officials. And obviously it would behoove you to engage the services of a lawyer. And, it, and the initial effort that you need to undertake is to understand what type of company you wish to establish in this jurisdiction. Is it a wholly foreign owned enterprise? Is it a cooperative joint venture, an equity joint venture? Is it a representative office? There are a litany of different 
approaches that all have both pros and cons, but also have various levels of commitment and requirement that are predicated upon your intent to trade in that domestic environment or manufacture or recognize revenue, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. So once you've ascertained the type of structure that you feel is appropriate and fits your business um, strategically and tactically, then you begin the application process and the entire sort of classic administration of setting up the firm. Typically in China these days, it's getting much more streamlined than it was say five to 10 years ago, but still there is a, a pretty significant amount of minutia that needs to be addressed. So the, the timeline on setting up, let's say for example, a wholly foreign owned enterprise would average you around 12 months. So once that entity is established, then you also obviously would need to open up banking relationships so that you could do both accounts payable, accounts receivables, et cetera. And again, in RIM and B would be the, the first, you know, the primacy of what you'd be wanting to do. So that's going to take potentially another six months. So if you're looking down the barrel of an 18 month process to get established, what I haven't mentioned in that narrative is you haven't hired anybody yet. So there is a, a sort of a serial approach to setting these things up and then ultimately being able to hire your first fully fledged full-time employee. And if you've just put that into that timeline of 18 months, that's a pretty significant amount of time that you've not been able to take advantage of the inherent opportunities in this particular market. So that's a classic kind of traditional approach. You could mirror that plus minus six months or so in pretty much every other major jurisdiction across this region, excluding of course, places like Singapore and like Hong Kong, which have a much more, um, let's say efficient and company formation friendly type of process in place and infrastructure to support that. But by and large, if you're trying to expand through the traditional methodology, you need to budget around between 50 to 100,000 us dollars, um, at a minimum and a minimum of between six to 12 months. And I, I want to just quickly call out that being said, let's assume that you've gone through those processes and you've set up and everything's good to go. If you uh, test your market for 12 months, as an example, post the setup and everything works well, then fantastic. You're ready to scale and rock and roll. If for whatever reason, maybe it's product market fit or misreading the signs of the market or what have you, it doesn't work out. If you thought setting up was difficult, wait until you try to unwind the entity and, and back your way out of that market. It's exceedingly painful and very challenging. 18 months sounds incredibly long. And this is assuming you do everything right from the get-go. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And, and there's the, it's the frustration and, and the, uh, the capital outlay and there's a whole host of things that you need to bear in mind. Now, again, I'm giving you significant circumstances here. You, could you do it faster? Are there different sorts of vehicles and different things you could do? Sure. But on average, particularly given the uniqueness of this point in time, it's 2021, we're coming through the backside of at least, as far as we can tell, the worst throes of the pandemic and the disruption that it has caused. This is the ideal time for capturing the number one KPI that I hear the C-suite talking about in the companies that we work with, which is time to value. How quickly can we embrace the opportunity post a disruption and ride the wave of, of recovery? 
And in a market like China, which is forecasted uh, for this year to potentially exceed 8.5% growth, you don't want to be sitting around for 12 months waiting for your first salesperson to hit the ground or your first supply chain officer to hit the ground. You want to be out there working within a week to take advantage of the unique position that we find ourselves in in the market. And for companies that might be using your global expansion platform, how fast would you be able to help them put boots on the floor? Look, it's a great question. The, the disclaimer, which sounds like an MBA student, right? It depends. But I will say to you that the fastest that we're used to doing it is within 12 hours. And typically we can do it within three to four days. People hear that. And if they're not familiar with how these things operate and they've heard the war stories and the horror stories, they say, I don't believe that's possible. But let me be clear. It's not alchemy. We, we have businesses on the ground running as you and I are speaking in these countries. So all we are doing in the eyes of the local ministries and governments is bringing somebody aboard, we're just hiring someone. So as fast as the local governments will allow for us to enroll the employees compliantly into whatever lodgements, social benefits, social insurance schemas are uh, mandatory, uh, a requisite in the particular jurisdiction, we can have these folks up and running. The beautiful thing is, as it relates to one of those areas of consternation that I mentioned in the traditional approach, is that we provide locally compliant, legally vetted and guaranteed employment contracts on demand in each of those jurisdictions. So instead of saying, hey, we found somebody, can you hire them for us? And we say, yeah, now go get a lawyer and draft a employment contract. We have those ready to go right on our platform and you could take them and just customize them for whatever terms and conditions you feel are germane to your business. But from a local statutory point of view, regulatory point of view, you're ready to hire. So it's a really exciting opportunity for firms who are interested in, as I said earlier, either grabbing talent in this global talent war that we're all in or entering into a new market with speed and alacrity in order to take advantage of the opportunity. When I was running my recruitment business, and this was during the early 2000s, we often come across candidates that might have some concern about signing a contract with us versus the company. Yeah. And we yeah. have to do it because it's outsourced to us and those kind of things. I would imagine in your situation, the contract would be with your company, given that you have the entity there. I just want to understand what are people's perspective to that over the course of years? Are they much more receptive to such an arrangement or are there certain concerns that might be a bit too overblown in their head? Well, you know what? It's a really great point. And I'll tell you that certainly now, given the environment that we're all operating in, the let's call it the open-mindedness around these sorts of solutions has become much more universally um, accepted and much more ubiquitously understood than it was even, even a year ago, frankly. But let's go back in time a little further, say five years ago. Having said that, one of the things that makes what a company like Globalization Partners done unique is the fact that the way that we have orchestrated and designed our contractual relationships is such that the employee is recognized as a full-time employee of the ultimate employer. We have a tripartite sort of contractual design in between ourselves. The, we call them the professionals. So our employees are our employees, the globalization partners employees, the folks that we hire on behalf of our clients, we call professionals. So we have a, an employment contract with that individual, and that is the instrument that is required in order for us to hire the individual locally 
and be, have it all be compliant under the guides of the legal frameworks in the countries which, in which we operate. We have a service agreement between ourselves and um, the uh, client. And then obviously there's opportunity for the, the ultimate employer and the employee to have an additional contract. And in, in countries, I'll just give you another example of why that's really interesting. In countries where it is legally um, acceptable, those professionals can even receive RSUs, equity allocations, et cetera, from the ultimate employers. They have the employer's email addresses, their name cards, their managers, et cetera. We do not get involved in any way, shape or form in the day-to-day -day operation or the management of the individual outside of that which would be constituted as HR administration. For the client, we're like, we're like a extension of their HR function on the ground. For the employee, we are a source of, you know, information should they require, let's say it's a, it's an escalation for a claim on a, on an insurance benefit or things of this nature. It's, it's, it's a really comforting thing actually, as opposed to a confusing thing for a lot of these employees because we're there. And for the, the ultimate employers, they're receiving payroll administration and the entire management of the employee life cycle and the salary and benefits and all of the maintenance of the core HR data and time management and expenses and HR guidance. And frankly, in some instances, hopefully this isn't the case, but it, it happens where the client decides that this country didn't work out and they're going to have to pull back and maybe explore another opportunity somewhere else. We are responsible for the termination. Now, the good terminations that we have are the ones where the company says, you know what, we're going all in. We're going to truly blow out and expand and invest in this country. And we simply transfer those employees off of our payroll and onto the vehicle for the, the ultimate client. And that's something that we celebrate. Obviously it's an exciting time, but I very rarely hear these days pushback once, once it is explained and once they get access to our software and they see how uh, much control they have over their relationships, both ways, it's actually a very, it's a boon for them they, and they feel supported. For listeners who may not be familiar with the term RSU, it actually stands for Restricted Stock Unit, which is a form of compensation issued by employer to employee in the form of company shares. And given the situation that we're in right now with COVID-19 forcing every company possible to work from home, I'm very certain that might have some form of material impact on your business. What have you seen over the past few years? Has any demand in terms of changes or has there been any form of requirement change over the, this period of time? So it's an interesting question and it's very uh, germane because I'll tell you, we were growing at a very good clip before the impact of the most recent black swan event, which will, you know, none of us will soon forget the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But I would suggest to you that pre the pandemic, much had been discussed. And I'm sure Adrian, in many of your conversations uh, with your constituency, with your uh, previous guests and probably with future guests, the conversation around a distributed workforce, a remote workforce is a recurring theme. I would be remiss if I didn't call out the cliche of the fact that indeed the pandemic accelerated these conversations, accelerated the urgency around these changes. It's, it's interesting to me to note that whilst these topics have been on the agenda for HR and for the, the wider C-suite in the businesses around the world for many years, it is indeed the case that due to COVID, it was a, for, for those folks who have the ability to work on a computer, 
and let's call them information workers who were able to become mobile, it democratized the impact and for, as I said, the, the sense of urgency, this reaction, this survival of the businesses to embrace and pivot on a dime in order to provide for business continuity. Where it's different um, than previous black swan events, the great financial crisis, the SARS epidemic, just two notable ones within recent memory. In those instances, the firms didn't have a plan to continue. In fact, they had a plan for how to get back as quickly as possible to the status quo. In this instance today, where we find ourselves is very firmly in a, in a new era where decision-making and the empowerment of choice and frankly, the power around how business is run and managed has shifted to a much more employee-centric relationship with the employer and employee, let's call it power balance for lack of a better term. That impact on our business has been profound in a couple of different areas since you asked. So one is indeed we are ostensibly tripling our workforce, our own internal workforce, just to deal with the demand that we're facing from companies large and small in every corner of the world. By, by the end of this year, we will eclipse a thousand employees globally. And we had forecasted as we were exiting 2020 and looking in the rearview mirror a little bit because everyone was looking in the rearview mirror in 2020 and trying to look ahead and, and ascertain we were, where we were going to land and what the world was going to be like. We forecasted a $700 million annual recurring run rate for the business going into 2021. And here we are at the halfway point and we're forecasting uh, 1 billion US in annual recurring revenue. So it's having a, a pretty profound impact on our business. And what it's causing us to do in addition is to actually reevaluate the way we run our business. So we are now a remote first business uh, globally. And for everyone we bring on board, the entire experience for all intents and purposes is a remote experience. So we drink our own champagne in that regard, but we can peel back some more of those tectonic shifts that I mentioned uh, just a moment ago as we go through this conversation together. And specific to your audiences or your customers in Singapore, what, what would be a percentage jump over the past? That's an interesting question and, and I'll try to answer it and not sound snide or cavalier, but. What's interesting about our operations in this region specifically is that for the decade that we've been operating, we have been very much a U.S. outbound company. So what does that mean? That means that the vast majority to the upper 90 percentile of the businesses that we served were U.S. based, by the way, predominantly technology companies who were on a significant growth trajectory, who were finding talent and wishing to expand into new markets in APAC but were tentative in their steps, um, wanted to make sure that they were doing the right things, that the talent they were hiring were the right people and uh, engaged us for our services. So therefore, in Singapore, Singapore is actually out of the top 10 locations in the world where we, where our clients, I should say, request their professionals to be placed. Singapore is in that top 10, which I think is a testament to many things, not least of which the attractiveness of Singapore as an international headquarters is an international hub. So that's, that's first and foremost. But what's also interesting is that when it comes to the level of um, sophistication in terms of companies, both large and small, understanding the nature of what's required in order to scale, to take advantage of the economic possibilities that are becoming increasingly prevalent in our marketplace, Singapore leads that. So I say all that as a preamble to tell you that 
I've been on board the firm. I joined during what we in Singapore had last year called a circuit breaker for your listeners who might not be aware. That's a full-fledged lockdown here in Singapore. And that's when I joined the firm. From that point until today, the latter part of 2021, what I've been focused on is building an organic business across this region. And Singapore and Australia, frankly, are the two key markets that have been driving our growth till today. Having said that, we're hiring like crazy across um, the entirety of Southeast Asia in Hong Kong. I've just you know brought on board teams in Korea, in Taiwan, in Japan. So we certainly are going to be counting on uh, a huge amount of organic expansion for our business. But that's, again, I want to preface that by saying that's aligned specifically to where the clients are growing out of and going into. So we're very fortunate with all the dry powder from a private equity venture capital point of view that's in this, the sheer volume and the sheer eye-watering numbers behind some of the free trade agreements that have recently been ratified by many countries across this region, not least of which the Regional Cooperative Economic Partnership, the RCEP, which since you mentioned Singapore, Singapore led that uh, effort from an ASEAN perspective, and now it's 15 nations successively ratified across the signatories. And that constitutes 30% of the global population and 30% of global GDP just within this region. So for sure, I anticipate Singapore as an example, leading the uh, evolution of remote and uh, particularly in the high growth startup phases of uh, some of the companies we work with, leading the exploration of new markets. And within the contribution of business from Singapore customers, how much of that do you think would be coming from uh, the intention to internationalize? Or is it due to the fact that they are looking at alternate countries to find their talent, given that right now everyone is working from home? Because I would imagine as a business owner, if my people are working from home, they don't necessarily have to come from Singapore. I can hire someone in Malaysia, someone from Vietnam. How much of that do you think actually come from that possibility from the idea from business owners that I could actually hire people outside of Singapore? This is a great question. And this is something that um, I'm actually speaking with people quite a bit, both in the uh, private sector, as well as in the public sector here in Singapore, because look, let's be frank, Singapore specifically, our number one sort of natural resource, our number one asset is our labor force, our people. And the, the need for businesses to be able to tap into a significantly evolving, a rapidly changing requirement around the types of um, skills and experiences that are needed to take advantage of all this economic growth that I just mentioned a moment ago is giving rise to the notion from a lot of companies that indeed, as you just very astutely pointed out, it's not necessarily the case that I have to hire someone in my backyard. I don't have to hire necessarily someone based in Singapore to do the job. What really becomes germane other than experience, pedigree, skill, et cetera, is really time zone. Now, the reason that I think this is really interesting is because in my experience in the past with ADP, with SAP, when I was running the cloud business there, that was very heavily focused on outsourcing. I mean, even at Microsoft, where I ran an outsourcing business for them as well. The original progenitor of the BPO industry was predicated upon low-cost labor arbitrage. It was very much around getting great quality and great process at the lowest price 
possible while maintaining or perhaps hopefully increasing um, the levels of productivity. Today, it, and I'm not in any way, shape or form calling what we're doing is BPO 2.0. What I'm saying is it's more now than ever a, a fight for finding the very best talent you can find. And in our nation, in Singapore, where we have, call it 5.6 million people here on this island, if for whatever reason, you can't seem to be able to find somebody in Singapore to be able to do that job and not least of which exacerbated by some of the immigration policies that are in place for the moment, then yeah, a lot of companies are coming to us and saying, Hey, we want to be able to hire wherever we find talent. Now that is not today as you and I speak, it's not the leading contributor to the inquiries around our model and our business still today, we're erring in this region more towards the internationalization, global expansion kind of narrative. Having said that, just within the past six months, there's been a precipitous increase in the number of inquiries coming from companies, yes, in Singapore and, and yes, abroad in this region around folks saying, we've been shut down here in this area for so long, and we've been unable to bring in talent for such an interminable amount of time that we have to find an alternative. And indeed, this model is by far and away the most compliant, most expeditious and safest way for these folks to uh, grab talent anywhere in the world. That also sounds to me like that the Singapore government may be looking at the wrong strategy because right now, the kind of friction that you get for any local companies, any Singapore companies to apply for S-Pass, for EP is still very high. With my interaction with many HR people, I'm getting a lot of comments and feedbacks that, oh, this EP failed again. I've put in this application for five times. I still couldn't get it clear. What is your take on this? I'm sure there are valid reasons from the government side on why they want to do this in order to protect the livelihood of individuals here. But learning what you just shared with us, companies can just bypass this whole thing and hire someone in their home country. Would it still make sense for the Singapore government to be so fixated on creating high friction when it comes to S-Pass and EP applications? This is a, a really interesting question and, and I'm going to dissect uh, both the question and my answer in perhaps a way that you might not expect. But here's the thing. And Singapore, by the way, is not unique in, in terms of having to deal with this challenge. It's just simply amplified by the, the size of our population and our, frankly, our geography and our reliance heretofore upon foreign labor across the spectrum. You mentioned the S-Pass and the employment pass, but beyond that, looking at even our ability to take in and approve entrepasses, the tech pass, permanent residence, et cetera, ad nauseum. There's been a extremely obvious, as you pointed out in the conversations you have with your HR community, extremely obvious, practically a halt on the issuance of these, these various immigration instruments. And I would say that it it is not surprising in any way that the government would put the air brakes on these types of issuances whilst they, I wouldn't even say scramble, but whilst they, let's say rally to put in place policy and program to not only prioritize Singaporean citizens for roles, number one, but as evidenced by the skills future and a number of other efforts across 
the private and public sector spectrum here in this country, the desire and the effort to upskill and reskill the whole range of the labor force, PMETs ad nauseum. So all that is completely justifiable and completely understandable. And no one should really throw rocks or dispersion at that because frankly, it's the same scenario in practically every country in the world right now. Having said that, the flip side, the corollary to my statements is that we are uniquely reliant upon the need to infuse our, our econ, our brain trust as a nation, the innovation that's required to keep us not just relevant, but actually ahead of the curve is based upon it. It's predicated upon foreign talent. Now, how do you address the needs, the requirements, which are real from the population, from the business sectors, and in turn also keep the tap flowing with respect to different types of talent. There are programs that are becoming much more prevalent around the world that are beginning to show, if you're keeping track, that the war for talent, which is manifest by the ease or difficulty of immigration, is beginning to become a war for talent, not just from company to company, but country to country. And so to your point, related to the Singapore government, if the government does not get innovative around the way in which they allow for the transfer of intellectual property and innovation into the local economy, thus being able to also capture tax revenue and by default, ergo foreign direct investment, if they don't get a clever way around how to do that, they're absolutely going to lose out to perhaps some neighbors or perhaps people even further afield. So some of the things that I've heard from various um, folks across the public sector spectrum is really starting to be focused on e-residency programs. Um, and e-residency programs will allow you to be able to not necessarily be a physical resident in the country in, in question, but potentially you could have things like your ability to establish an online company, accessing business and personal banking services, potentially being able to tap into national health services, pay taxes, sign documents, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of countries are starting to do this. The, the best one that I've seen is uh, Estonia. And if you look up their e-residency program in Estonia, it is, uh, it, it's incredible, very transparent, minimal maintenance, low startup costs, et cetera. And you have this opportunity to establish your uh, residency and therefore a business and because it's in the EU, obviously, it gives you a very uh, wide range of opportunities to grow your business into different areas and take advantage of different services. But my point is that within the construct of ASEAN, Singapore is uniquely positioned as a, the most developed, most mature big brother of that family. And I would suggest to you that an e-residency program here, coupled with digital nomad type visa issuances in partnership with places like Thailand, who have recently reopened. Um, from, for vaccinated tourists without the need for quarantine, Bali, which also has a uh, digital nomad visa schema, et cetera. You start to build these things together and th the rising tide lifts all the boats. We maintain the opportunity of bringing in intelligence, high levels of skill and tax dollars and foreign direct investment. And they tap into our infrastructure and our location. It's a fantastic opportunity. Hopefully this episode, when it goes live, reaches out to someone in Ministry of Manpower and cause them to rethink the policy. But I think most importantly, this episode should also land into the inbox of someone at IRAS.
to <laughs> remind them how much tax dollar we are losing out. Thank you so much today for your time, Charles, in helping us to understand how businesses can make it, can really hire employees anywhere in the world easily and not go through the kind of painful cycle that you mentioned earlier on, 18 months in China kind of thing. That is just unbelievable. And for people who would be keen to learn more about globalization partners, where can they go to? Look, there's a ton of great resources on our website. If you go to www.globalization-partners.com, we have a, a particularly interesting uh, area there called Globalpedia which is essentially a, a wiki of all the various types of things you would need to research and understand about local labor laws, et cetera, for all the countries that we cover. And I think it's a great resource to get you started on your due diligence. I'll put that in the show notes. And once again, thank you so much for your time today, Charles. Lovely speaking with you. Pleasure's mine. Take care. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to more information about our guests and their businesses. If you enjoyed this podcast, it will be helpful to give a review on iTunes or follow me on Spotify. If you are using Overcast, please hit the star button under the episode. That will help get this episode and podcast out to more people who may find it useful. I'll see you in the next episode of The Agent Han Show.